0: If the Bible's got you tied in knots If you burden with religious thoughts Come grab a drink and join the choir It's Heretic Happy Hour Ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to announce that this is the 50th episode of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast They said it wouldn't last <laughs> So, so, hey, um, I'm Keith Giles, uh, one of your co-hosts. I'm the author of Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible and the forthcoming book, Jesus Unveiled, Forsaking Church as We Know It for
1: Ecclesia as God Intended, coming out June
0: 9th. Uh, And I'm joined by my co-host,
1: Matt and Jamal. Hey, guys. Hi, friends. This is Jamal. So good to be back on the Heritage Happy Hour. I am the author of... The newly released living for a living book, which is uh, really exciting and I uh, hope you've got a chance to grab that. And I can't believe we, this is our 50th episode mm. because, because they said that we would make it. That's right. And they were wrong. <laughs> they were wrong. The, we, were on, we don't have to talk about who they are, but they were, they are wrong. Yes,
0: We have weathered the storms. Yes. We have, we yes. have gone through many, many, um, controversies and, um, attacks, uh, it's, uh, it's, it, you know, and now we've emerged victorious and now it's just sailing from here on out. We'll never have another problem.
1: It's not bad for three, three white Southern males on a podcast.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah.
1: Well,
2: I guess I'll, that, thanks for Thanks for that. Um, Jamal, that was, that was good. That makes me Matt. One of the three Southern white males. Um, I also have a new book coming out, but it's not coming out. So like November, so we don't need to talk about it yet but I'm excited about it. And I'm super excited that we made 50 episodes and I just got to say as much as I love the content and as much as I love recording, I think what I love more about it is that this to me is as close to church as I get. So cheers to you all. Um, for, for, for that. I I've had a blast and I do look forward to another 50. Yeah,
0: episodes. me too.
1: So thanks. Yeah. I, I hope we get there. Yeah. It's like an anniversary of sorts.
0: Yeah. I, I did, sorry. I didn't yeah. get you guys anything. Yeah. Uh, I apologize. I'll send you a card. Uh, That's okay. Uh, Hey, uh, so I also need to. No,
2: no, you won't. No, you're right. I won't. won't.
0: So, uh, hey, I also need (laughs) to um, make sure that I mention that this 50th episode of the Heritage Caballero podcast is sponsored by the Hope Center, a community resource center serving one of Alabama's poorest communities by providing a neighborhood market where neighbors can shop for food at no cost in an atmosphere of love and respect. Please, would you visit their website at servealabama.org for more information and to make a generous donation thank you
1: yes guys and i would like to um introduce this portion of the podcast by letting people know that we have a hotline and the number is 240-343-7379 so you can plug that into your speed dials and uh, we have and you can text that as well so we always love having texts and voicemails come in um but we have a text to share uh, on today's podcast uh, thank you. This ah, paper's hot. I Quote, started listening to the podcast less than a year ago and recently started going back to the ones I missed. Just finished episode 19 when Matt was the HOTW oh, heretic of the week. So much of what was said by the three of you are things I have been expressing myself lately. The beauty of mystery and how none of us have a complete understanding of God. And that's Okay. The only thing I can be certain, quote, certain of is that God is good and he loves me. That's from Keith. Um, that that, That there is a different kind of knowing which involves experiencing God rather than just knowing about him. That's from Matthew. And that we don't have to speak the same religious, quote, unquote, language to have an understanding of the things of God. From Jamal. So very glad to have found my tribe of the three of you. Despite the trivial differences in theology you all may have, let me just say, you are my people. There are many of us who are grateful for your voice. Thank you. And what's that hotline number again?
0: Yeah, there you go. You know, I think many people have said, though, the, the secret of our success really is the hotline.
2: That, that's of course. Because, that-
0: you know, I think, I think the numbers, the statistics have shown, uh, have proven that podcasts without a hotline are yeah. not as good and don't last as long. Uh, and so really thank you. Hotline.
1: That's yeah. we. that's why we made it to 50. <laughs> that's, that's right.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
1: Yeah, no, really, we really thank you, uh, to the, to the listener for this text. I really do it. You know, um, It. it is, it's awesome to, again, it's just good to know that, you know, these conversations and we, we do put a lot of, um, effort into this. So, um, the, the reason we do this is because we do want it to be um, a service and an encouragement and a blessing to people who are listening and that it would help people on their journey. So it really means a lot when we get texts like this and yeah. just thank you for, for sharing that with us. It really, really helps.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it, in all seriousness, yes, um, it really is not the hotline, but certainly the messages and the texts and the emails either through the hotline or just directly. Uh, Cause I know all three of us have received uh, very encouraging messages from listeners. Um, and it makes a difference. You know, when you get, when you get people who have listened and who have really been blessed by the podcast, uh, who've been challenged, who've been inspired, uh, who've been given answers to things they've wondered about for a long time I and mean, all those things, it's sort of like, well, it's why we keep doing it. It's why I love continuing to do it is because we can see and hear from listeners that we are making a difference in their lives. We are providing a value to them. And so, uh, please, as long as we keep doing that, please let us know because um, it means a lot to us and it makes, makes it easier to do this you know, on a regular basis. It makes it more exciting for us.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. amen to that.
0: Yeah, and so um, I also need to say that we're very happy that Zondervan is providing us with a brand new NRSV Comfort Print Bible to give away every episode for the next eight episodes. Uh, and so if you would like to see the full lineup of these new Comfort Print, new revised standard version Bibles, visit nrsv.net. And here's how you can win your copy. You can either call the hotline with a 60 second, it's got to be 60 seconds or less, a hilarious Bible story, or share a favorite episode of the podcast on Facebook or Twitter and tag uh, one of the three of us, and you'll be entered to win. And yeah. we have a winner, right? We have, uh, yeah, we have Adam yeah. Uh He shared episode 48, which was the one with uh, Brian Zahn on the atonement. So congratulations, Adam.
2: Yeah. And sorry, I, you tagged me and I'm so freaking dense sometimes that I was just like, well, okay, cool. Thanks. And (laughs) I'm like the wrong, I'm the wrong host to tag. I swear. I I sometimes don't get it. I don't know what my deal is, but uh, yeah. Adam
1: McBroom, congratulations. Yeah. Congrats. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Just be careful with what you do with that book. It's dangerous. Yeah, it's a dangerous yeah, book. It is.
0: Well, well, some some people have said that book doesn't exist, so you might not actually get anything in the mail.
3: <laughs>
1: well, I'm just saying you should you should send a thank you note to the Vatican for that book because yeah. that's really where it comes from. That's from. Uh, sure. Yes, which doesn't exist. Well, now, of course. Well, so yeah. Yes.
0: Well, I think that I think it's time now uh, to lead us into let's get let's get this podcast rolling, and we have a an interview we have been waiting. Waiting, waiting to share with you. We, we are so excited about this next Heretic of the Week. It's the
3: Heretic of the Week. Hello, I'm David Bentley Hart, and apparently I'm this week's heretic.
0: <laughs>
3: Hi, David. Hello.
0: Oh, wow. We are so, uh, so excited to have you as our guest on the podcast. Um, so I wanted to, uh, typically what we do is we typically start off asking our, our guests, um, what are the reasons why people have um, labeled you a heretic or have accused you of being a heretic?
3: Well, I, you know, there's so many and so many good reasons why one might that that it's hard to reduce it to a few. Um, of course, it depends on what tradition people come from. To a Calvinist, for instance, I'll always be a heretic. Uh, because Calvinism, with its extraordinarily tenuous relation to the Christian religion, uh, tends to, to view anything uh, that uh, you know resembles the teachings of the New Testament as suspect. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I've even I've even been honored with the title by people within the Orthodox Church, uh, which is my home—not always a shelter, but a home. Mm-hmm. Um, Although, I I will say this, since you ask, um, people who like to throw that word around in this country, in the Orthodox world, tend with fair regularity to be recent converts to the faith. And Hmm. as a rule, they come from an evangelical background in which uh, their expectations are that whatever Christians believe are something that can be boiled down to the sort of faith statement you might find at the back of a Baptist chapel. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they're very quick to become experts in both, uh, orthodoxy and heresy and to denounce the latter in the name of what they imagine to be the former. Uh, so, all that was rather obscure and elliptical. (laughs) Uh, let me say this. Uh, it's, 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 it's a considerable mark of honor, uh, to bear that name when it comes at you from certain quarters, including, I would say, the, uh, the sort of fundamentalist wing of the Orthodox Church that is composed of former evangelicals who are actually not former evangelicals at all.
0: Hmm. Yeah, uh, I wanted to say, um, I really have, my wife and I have been really loving reading your new um, translation of the New Testament. And one of the things that in my own studies uh, of reading through your translation uh, is how exciting it is to re- recognize that um, when you strip away some of the theology that has sort of been collected and and added to some of the translations over the years, um, having that stripped away, you suddenly realize that Paul wasn't a Calvinist. And, no. and hey, he might have even been the first Universalist. And so uh,
3: these concepts... Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no. That would be Jesus. But anyway... Uh- uh, uh, Well, look, I mean, uh, I, I think it's a curious thing. I mean, one of the reasons why the word heretic is is uh, a dangerous one to use is because it always comes at the end of a particular set of doctrinal and theological developments within which a person is situated that one assumes go back to the beginning. But... Mm. You know, most of the people who use this word are, you know, will consult a translation that reflects those theological pre- prejudices. And also, even if one it doesn't do that, one tends to read the text, placing the emphasis where one's formation has taught one to place it. So you, you mentioned Paul and Calvinism. What well, I mean, there's a very specific reading, say, of of Romans nine through eleven, that we that has its birth in the late Augustine, and that really forms the foundation of not, not only Calvinism, but the trans, Protestant translations of the Bible that have become standard in much of the English-speaking world. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that the translations, it's not that the inaccurate translations led to uh, a, a, an entirely fanciful theology, it's just the result. It's that a bad theological tradition created bad translations. Mm-hmm. And, and it really is necessary to go back. And when you do what you find in Paul, if you, if you can, and it's almost impossible to do this, to purge your mind of your doctrinal or your theological expectations as you find a first century Hellenistic Jewish thinker who has had a life-changing mm-hmm. experience with the risen Christ, he believes it fiercely and firmly, but the categories in which he's speaking are not the categories we presume. He, When he speaks of spirit, when he speaks of flesh, when he speaks of grace, when he speaks of well, what's called works, and really even that's a problematic mm-hmm. way of translating. Uh, uh, when he talks about something that we might call the chaos in Greek, is often translated justification, a word that's become almost infinitely useless. Uh, in trying to, because there's so many theological attachments to it that are false, what you find is not somebody whose interests were what a later tradition ascribed to him. In fact, Romans nine to eleven is, if anything, a series of obiter dicta. It's a, it's an excursus for him regarding the specific question about the relationship between God's covenant mm-hmm. with Israel and His saving message to the nations, and how these things can be reconciled without. Proving that God has abandoned His people, but that's a very small concern for him. His larger soteriological narrative is nothing like the one, say, that Orthodox Reformed theology gives you. Yeah,
0: (laughs) I I wanted to I wanted to go kind of like stay on the whole thing about Romans. So, um, you are obviously aware of the theory of uh, prosopopia that's going on in the Book of Romans and in other uh, Paul's writings. Do you have an opinion about that? Do you think that is What's going on?
3: How do you understand that? Because because the question is, the question is precisely what you think the theory is. You use that, that term is used differently by different New Testament scholars,
0: right? Well, the way I understand it is that just in a very general sense that um, Paul is throughout Romans, especially, is having sort of an imaginary argument with an opponent, and so some of the arguments that he poses are not. Arguments that he personally holds to, he's he's posing the argument and then responding to it and refuting oh. it. And so the problem is if we okay, don't so, right, recognize right, that, right? And right, we think, oh, well, right here, look, Paul said right here, and they quote that verse and they stop and they say, well, there you go, see, Paul said right. that.
3: Okay, so you've got it right then. The last time someone brought this up, uh, when I asked him for a definition, he got it completely. Uh, backwards, which is that he thought it meant that Paul was actually literally replying to uh, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. some other document. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, the point is, of course, that, that one doesn't. this isn't even a, a matter of debate, because Paul himself clearly is dealing with a conditional question in Romans 9, which he then negates in Romans 11. Mm-hmm. Mm. For instance, in Romans 9, he says, well, you know, what if God had created vessels of wrath. Well, who would you be to argue with him? Uh, Isn't he your maker? All right, well, uh, it's amazing how much of of Western theological tradition stops there as if he's making an assertion. Yes, right. uh, Of course— He's explicitly not. Uh, he's starting with, you know, maybe this is the answer, but then of course this answer appalls him because of what it would mean. So the whole reason there then follows the rest of that chapter and then chapter 10 and chapter 11 is that he's trying to arrive at a solution to the question that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. And where he arrives, of course, is that God is bound all in disobedience that. All might be shown mercy. So there are no vessels of wrath, except in the uh, provisional sense that all of us are bound to displease. All of us are vessels of wrath. That we all might be vessels of mercy. The whole reason he brings this up is, is you know, is the question that could could you just uh, uh, take a retreat to an argumentum ad baculum and, and simply. Uh, say that God in his sovereignty uh, can do whatever he wants. And for, obviously for Paul, this is not sufficient. He really believes that God is true and just and keeps his word and that his covenants are everlasting. And therefore, it cannot be the case. And remember, only uh, only because people seem to think that Paul is talking here about the division between two groups of souls mm. rather than Israel and the church are they likely to miss the point mm. Also, recall, you know, uh, the, the Jacob and Esau are his are his biblical typology here, right? And the, why is that so? Because, as in chapter eleven of Romans, where there's a reconciliation of the two seemingly separate camps of the elect and the derelict, or you know, it, it turns out that there is no such ultimate estrangement. There's only a provisional. Division and as with Jacob and Esau, they're ultimately reconciled exactly. to the increase of both. <laughs> exactly, uh, there has never now now. Luckily, Eastern tradition never read those chapters the way the Augustinian tradition did. Mm-hmm. And so, the Orthodox tradition never uh, incubated within itself anything like that kind of picture of a God who really does out of a sheer sheer expression of of uh, uh, sovereignty creates vessels entirely intended for dereliction in order to display His glory mm-hmm. as much in in the sheer arbitrariness of His wrath. I know Calvinists will object to the word arbitrariness there, but they have mm-hmm. no right to do so because that's exactly what it is. Uh, it is divine arbitrium. That's the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the curious thing is is you don't. This is not a matter of abstruse. Hermeneutical, hermeneutical cleverness on my part. It is Paul himself who explicitly mm-hmm. <laughs> arrives at the conclusion that negates the uh, the specter of divine volunt the, spect- the specter of divine cruelty, of divine dishonesty mm-hmm. that he raises in chapter 9. So, I mean, to speak of prosopopeia as uh you know, as a hypothesis, I think is is a waste of time. Uh, it's not a hypothesis; it's the clear structure of the text. So he raises a hypothetical question. He considers what it would mean. He rejects it out of hand as being an inadequate hypothesis when speaking of of, of the God of mercy, justice, and truth. And uh, then he arrives at a completely contrary conclusion.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm. So David, I'm, I'm, I'm
2: curious if, um, if you were, if you were were raised, what tradition were you raised in and were there moments in your life that transpired that, that took you in the direction that you've been going? Um, it, it, were well, you I was, raised
3: I ra- Orthodox? No, no. I was raised, a uh, high church Episcopalian, high Anglican, Anglo-Catholic. Um, and, uh, Remember the Anglican tradition from an early period, uh, because it's not like the Reformation traditions of the continent which were making a clear break with Catholic tradition the, the Anglican Church understood itself as still having this sort of Catholicity, this apostolic mm-hmm. tradition sure. so so sure. It's, that's why Anglican scholarship actually long before uh, continental theology had, revived and created patristic scholarship of a very high order. So the Church Fathers had been recovered in the Church of England, thinking in the way that other Western communions really did until the 19th and 20th centuries. Uh, I'm not even sure there would have been a ressourcement movement in the Catholic Church, but for uh, if there hadn't been the powerful example of a former Anglo-Catholic patristic scholar named John Henry Newman who crossed the Tiber... Mm. So uh, I was always exposed from an early t- early period to Eastern sources. There was no convulsive break. I didn't, you know, repudiate mm-hmm. anything. I just was always drawn to the East. Largely, I'm sorry to say, because of the absence of uh, Augustinianism. Not nothing against Augustine, mm-hmm. but by Augustinianism I mean the late Augustine's language of grace mm-hmm. and nature, which are, you know, the way it's constructed really is alien to the world of the, of the New Testament and his understanding, his misreading of Paul and the damage done by his inability to read Greek, the whole language of predestination, anti-privesa merita, so many things mm-hmm. that became standard in Catholic and Protestant thought that, uh, I would have found impossible yeah. uh, to live with. I mean, if, if uh, I was drawn to the East and if there hadn't been that Eastern horizon, I doubt if I would have, uh, gone very far with the Christian uh, world at all uh, because I I find that aspect of Western tradition not only uh, personally uh, distasteful, I just think it's intellectually and and morally uh, corrupt. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
2: I think that's what... It's so hard, like, as someone raised in the Protestant church, like, I had such a different experience where it's like just throw the whole fucking thing out because it's so i don't know if it's it's just a different perspective like in protestantism once you really peel the layers back it's like wow this is so off base that i don't know if i can keep any of it and that's what was so hard
3: yeah well that might be a perfectly legitimate response as well (laughs) i i mean as i say it's all a matter of look i mean i i have a, a syncretist uh tendency anyway in which I uh, you know, I don't you know, being a Christian doesn't mean that I therefore have erected partitions to exclude uh, pagan or Indian thought or mm-hmm. later Jewish oh, that's thought or Muslim philosophers, mm-hmm. you know, it's not uh, I'm not uh, uh, I'm not a doctrinaire mm-hmm. uh, person in that regard and I think actually people who are, are, are have misunderstood fundamentally <laughs> uh, well yeah, yeah. No, I mean if, if Christianity <laughs> okay. is true I mean and I don't mean if Christianity is true as a system of propositions. Right. I mean if it's a true form if it's the true form of life, a true form of life, it is one that encompasses all truth. Yes. It's not it's Thank not you. it's not a series of disjunctions that are sealing you off from a profane world. Rather it's it's a way it's yes. a way of seeing the whole of reality that allows yeah. you to recognize the light uh, of truth that that's sure, right. all things. And uh, I have no interest, as I said, again, the language of heresy doesn't interest me. Actually, the language of orthodoxy doesn't really interest me very much, except insofar <laughs> as there are things in the orthodox tradition, or small smaller orthodoxy, is that there are aspects of orthodox tradition which are very precious in guarding against uh, certain, Evils of the mind, you know, the moral tradition, but also uh, the, the high, say, the high orthodox understanding, Christian understanding, the metaphysical tradition of the ancient and medieval Church that that affirms that a proper understanding of God's nature is one that cannot be um, in alliance with the violence and evil of history. Whereas, so I, I mean, to that degree, if I say I were to come across a really Hegelian theology in which God is positing Himself and forging Himself in the fires of history, and so violence is part of the necessary story, at that point I would say, well, let's—heresy we, is fine if you want to use the word—but I would just say, you know, false. You know that that cannot <laughs> be true. Whatever is true, sure, that sure. cannot be true. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I understand what you're saying. The the impulse is, and I've, I mean, many times in my life, I thought, why am I bothering with this uh, Mm. at all? Um, What fascinates me is the figure of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's not actually the system, the system of doctrines. And one of the reasons for doing a New Testament translation was simply to retreat again into the extraordinary strangeness of the first century and. And yep. trying again for what a strange interruption, uh, the, uh, the words and person and and, and proclamation, uh, proclamations regarding Christ all constituted and at the time. That's
1: really good. That's a really good. One, David, I I love what you're saying, um, and I've I've often the longer I go down this road, the more I realize I t- truly understand Jesus, the person of Jesus, and and what he was teaching was this. This fits so well. Like I don't understand, you know. I'm like, wow, this is there is no division between the east and the west in that sense. This is it. It, it seems to me that this is a continuation of the conversation that many Eastern and when I say Eastern, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, even even Buddhist, Hindu um, folks from you know, in, in the ancient times before the time of Jesus. You know, these are these are things that have been sure. brought yeah. forth, and you know, Jesus are like. I, I believe that he's obviously has a unique role in the in the in the scope of the unveiling of. But it's an ongoing conversation, and I don't understand the
3: need to erect. Well, 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 let's put it this way if Christ is a real, is the unique revelation of the Logos, the Logos cannot be a unique revelation. That is, it can't be, it can't be something that is just ontologically and epistemologically sealed against reality. It, rather, it's the revelation of the underlying principle of all things, which which is manifest. I mean, that's mm-hmm. Romans chapter one, right? In all of reality, and and i again, as in my own work, for instance, when I work in philosophy of mind, I, I draw uh, quite often from uh, early Vedanta and. Uh, Chittamatra Buddhism, mm. especially certain streams mm. of Yogacara and because I simply find it's a more solvent language for consciousness that, that uh, Western philosophy was a bit behind times catching up to, these, mm. to the examination of conscious states And but these, these are examinations that come from profound religious experiences too and, and only I think a fool. Uh, would claim that there was no, you know, I, I've actually, I've had, I mean, right. I, I, uh, I, I've been. You asked at the beginning why I've been called a heretic. I've been called a heretic actually by some of these converts to orthodoxy for suggesting that grace exists not only outside the Orthodox Church. But outside the Christian world, and the, you may—you may amazing what howls of dismay. Oh, oh sure. So, because sure. again, as I say, a lot of these people <laughs> come from evangelical traditions, which the whole point mm-hmm. is they found the one way to salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 you know, and, and that the one way to salvation, it's almost like our, our picture of, of the the picture we've been given. I don't think it's quite accurate. The picture of Gnosticism is you have the special secret. You've got the right words. You know, the special formula Mm -hmm. for chasing away the archons. And, (laughs) uh, and that once you know these, once you Hmm. know these magic words, in the case of, say, a Thomist, it might, uh, uh, of the, uh, Manualist tradition, you know. Well, as long as you know the difference between sufficient and efficacious grace, and you know, and all these other absurd categories that correspond to nothing real, or <laughs> if right. you're a Calvinist, you know, as a specific understanding of justification and works—the one that actually is exactly the opposite mm. of what Paul's actually saying. You know, <laughs> if you have these magic words, you can conjure your way. Up, 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 past the, the gates of hell, but it's an extremely, extremely unlikely thing. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it, you come from that sort of background, then, then of course, all Christianity uh, then becomes for you, rather than a, a deepening realm of mystery and revelation at once, it becomes simply a, a sort of arid formula you have to cling to, like a piece of flotsam on the surface of the ocean because you're afraid of sinking mm. if you if you if you venture even mm. an inch away from the proper the proper doctrine i i i think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of revelation i think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of grace i think it invariably is based on doctrinal deformations of the original documents anyway and that's the in some sense the most the most uh, the most uh, uh, melancholy fact of all is that, that they're clinging to traditions that they, they often don't know or, you know, if they're right about the way Christianity works, they've almost certainly got the wrong formulas.
0: Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is uh, you were describing that reaction that you have, uh, even within your own tradition, when you suggest that grace is not only for those outside of, of your tradition, but even outside of Christianity, and then people will freak out. And I, I couldn't help but think, well, isn't that exactly what happened when Jesus went to his hometown, stood up in the synagogue, Read from the scroll of Isaiah, and then proceeded to suggest that God's God's grace was also for the the Phoenician woman and the Syrian, and you know that the prophets weren't sent to any Jewish widows, but to you know those who were pagan and outside and Gentiles. And then that's when they wanted to kill him. It's because he was suggesting that God's
3: at that point very specifically uh, 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 there. The story is, of course, he's making a claim about the imminent arrival, the actual arrival, the actual presence. Of the promised uh, Messianic age, or at least mm-hmm. that seems to be. It's as it's you know, this day, and you're hearing the words. Yes, of the uh, but even so, yeah. I mean, there's uh, there is a uh, uh, just. Take, I mean, of course, that's the uh, offense also of, of Pauline Christianity in mm-hmm. yeah, the eyes of beginning. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, look at the, 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 let me. I've been for the most part. It's rude more about Calvinism than say about a certain kind of Reformation age Catholicism. So let me shift to the other for a moment. Okay. Uh, in the Manualist Thomas tradition, it is claimed. Now, are there are any number of reasons logically why this cannot be so. I mean, it can be, you know, just for the most basic uh Logic of potency and act and all that, but nonetheless, it's claimed that grace is entirely that the the saving grace is entirely extrinsic to the nature of the creature. What this means is, it's possible for a, a rational spirit to find total satisfaction in a purely natural end. God could have created us all, sent us to hell. He would have, you know, owed us nothing. Grace is entirely a super addition uh, to the nature of the creature, uh, rather than uh, than uh, then the universal presence in nature, in a sense, it becomes what what was opprobriously uh, but correct, correctly called two-tier Thomism, that is, the levels of nature and grace are actually two distinct tiers, and only by a miraculous super-elevation of the creature is anyone admitted to grace, and this purely by the predestining will of God, since Thomism is every much as a bit a, a, a language of predestination, mm-hmm. as Calvinism. All right, well, Again, philosophically, this is rubbish. I mean, it can't be true. It would basically be saying that that what grace is is the magical transformation of a creature, and something it isn't, and that somehow that's salvation and that that and the way you get around this is is again logically incoherent language. Something called an, an obediential potential. I know I'm going on and on, but let me finish. The proper way to understand grace in nature is. That you're talking, um, and here, this in some sense is Eastern tradition, but it's also the tradition that's clearly present in Paul, if you'd understand the intellectual world he's in. There's no, grace and nature are just two names for the same thing seen from different angles. Mm-hmm. It's a so grace, fr- it's, it, nature uh, is, is fr- in the order of being, the final result of God's creative and saving grace. And grace in the order of being, is the original and ultimate uh, being of nature. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all, all divisions between the two, whether it's in the language of predestination or not, all divisions between the two are based on a fundamental and destructive uh, vision, uh, 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 I'm mean, sorry, deformation of the vision of reality that prevailed in the times of the Gospels and the Epistles.
1: And part, look, here, yeah. I'm, well, I'm just want to clarify because I think what I'm hearing you say is like this distinction between general revelation and special revelation. Is that right? When you're talking about,
3: well, there can be no. I mean, the, there can be a kind of distinction there. Yeah. I mean, there, there's there's a but but it, there's not a disjunction. <laughs> I mean, right. Right. Uh, the notion that uh, uh, that uh, only only the special revelation is salvific. Only that. Could right. be a vehicle of efficacious yeah. grace as opposed to mere sufficient grace. Again, this is the these are the Thomist categories I was talking about. They tried to get right. around right, because you, you see you have these embarrassing pericopes in Scripture, like God wills that all should be saved to come to a knowledge of the truth. But if you're a hard and fast Thomist, like or a Calvinist, you believe that what God wills must come to pass, and and yet we know according to these traditions that God really wants to send most people to right. hell. So the way they understand this is that God uh, provides sufficient grace for everyone, but he provides efficacious grace. That is the grace that would predestine them, uh, predispose them to accepting the gospel only to the elect. Well, I, I, I I can't oh, – yeah, go on. Well, the,
1: you know, I think I think what you're saying, I just want to emphasize, like uh-huh. so radically important for, I guess, the listeners. I just want to say, like, this idea – what you're saying, the difference, you know, that's only special revelation, like, and that would be doctrinal, Um, this idea yeah. that only special revelation is salvific, meaning giving, life-giving. Yeah, it's hogwash. I mean, I, I, I think the thing that I feel so blessed by just well, life, I,
3: I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, wash a hog in it, actually. <laughs> I think that the hog deserves something better. But, right.
1: um, I just, I love what you're saying, that it's all... Like every like life giving salvific grace comes through everything. Yeah, I, I, I just think that we can experience that in daily life, and it's not like we're drawing these this, this
3: wall up between. By the know. same token, it's something we can resist in everything. It's sure. it's the availability. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. I. Uh, but I mean, it, it is amazing um, uh, how hard it is for people to accept. I mean, look. I'm. We're probably well past time. I'm probably keeping you longer here than I, than I should. <laughs>
0: we're yeah,
2: nothing we,
3: don't, we, we don't care at this point. We're, we're good. All right. Well, <laughs> in my recent uh, translation of the New Testament, right, there's this first, Acts There, I, I didn't realize this about Refor, the Reformation tradition is there is that uh, the more the linguistic studies and the historical studies have have eaten away at at their understanding of say words like pro in scripture how desperate they are for language mm-hmm. of predilective predestination of of a small number that a lot of them put a great emphasis on acts thirteen forty eight uh which uh, uh Let's see. Here, uh, here, here. Memory. Sir, one isn't going to serve. Let me look. I have the Nestle. a quote the Taitt Nirheron here. The oxes on to log to tookirio ke stefson. That's the important word. Is so in the I translated that Uh something like hearing this, the Gentiles were elated. And they gave glory to the Lord's word, and as many as were disposed mm-hmm. to the life of the age had faith. Okay, tatagmine. I actually had these these uh, Presbyterian ministers, you know, writing to me. Apparently, uh, a lot of Reformed tradition insists upon that word. That word, totogny, it should be rendered as ordained or predestined, and they really hinge their whole faith on this this passing remark in. Uh, in Acts, uh, and and he accused, one of them even accused me of enfeebling wow. the verb for theological reasons. But actually, I mean, it, it, I was just translating it correctly. By the way, I mean the verb uh, "tasso" uh, does actually mean ordain in the the sort of um, you know the op, almost obsolete sense of arranging or setting an order or pointing or signing to a stadium uh, station. Uh, and in military matters, it, it's something along the lines of arranging soldiers in rank and file or assigning them p- place on the battlements. But it's uh, the emphasis in the verb isn't upon giving commands, but only upon getting things in appropriate order. And in the passive or the middle voice, and to talk, could be either. Uh, it has at most its participial form has at most the force of you know ready for, prepared for, suited to, or disposed to. You know, and it, it's a very weak formulation right. it doesn't mean predestined foreordained you know and yet uh you know these guys they were almost violent in their in their anger that i had uh had the temerity to translate the word correctly mm-hmm. and and what w- w- what's interesting about that is it just it, it, if you were i'm sure if you were to go to well the, the worst translation ever made the new international version <laughs> no one like you are going to find you you're going to find something that 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 suggests that what that verse is saying is a certain small number who were you know basically predestined. I have actually seen looked up in some versions reformed versions actually just use the word predestined there i mean a absolutely inexcusable mm. yeah. act of, of 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 misrepresentation of the text yeah and and what struck me about this was the the passion they were pouring into. They needed this verse to be saying that the elect are a small number uh, chosen by God entirely, almost by caprice, Mm. to which no additions could be made. And I thought, well, you know, you're 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 expending a lot of energy. Let's say that's what the verse does mean. Shouldn't that just be an argument to you to stop taking this religion seriously? I mean, well. Yes. (laughs) Yes,
0: <laughs> well, you know, you're a liberal scholar, though. You're you're a liberal scholar. Oh, is that scholar. what I am? Yeah,
3: I, you're, I, I, you're I'm, a- I'm a radical. <laughs> not a liberal. Okay. I, I, I this, uh, this, uh, yeah, I, that must be what it is. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm afraid, though, that's the problem with scholarship, isn't its is it turns everyone into a subversive if they if they pursue it seriously enough. Yeah, I think so. I mean, unless unless you go into the into the field into the various fields studying only in order to find uh, devious ways to create a false impression of the sources. But instead is going to happen to you is that you're going to find yourself more and more unable to cling to the certitudes that set you off on your path. Mm.
0: Yeah. So mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be scholars. Yeah. Yeah. Be very careful. Well, this has been amazing. Um, I think we could probably keep going for another hour, but I know we did want to, we do want to uh, honor your time as well. Um, Jamal, did you want to ask him
1: uh, the last question? Sure. Sure. Well, I was uh, just curious about what you're working on currently and how folks can, can get in touch with your work.
3: Well, you know, I'm always working on many things at a time I have uh, going back. I you may or may not know that I also publish fiction and I, I have, Various, various works of fiction that I'm contracted for, both for adults and younger readers that are in the works. I have a big project on philosophy of mind, which is unfolding at a glacial pace, but that's mm. appropriate because the literature right now is vast. I have a book coming out from Yale that's already in typeset on universalism. Um, oh, good. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a number of other things, uh, some, some comic work. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm afraid that being, that's the good thing about being a dilettante is that you don't have to, you don't have to bore yourself to death by just working on one thing at a time.
2: Right. So where, where can people get a hold of you and in, in, in to to keep up with all the, all the good shit you're doing? Well played,
3: said, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, we compliment you on your eloquence. Uh, <laughs> they can't get a hold on, on, on me at all. I'm a private person. But uh, the, uh, the the next book is, um well, the, I mean, the, the uh, Universalism book will be coming out from Yale. Uh, uh, sometime after that, there's a big collection of essays coming out from Notre Dame Press, and the fiction mm-hmm. will be showing up in mm-hmm. various places so uh there is a i should say this there's a facebook page i don't run it it's run for me by family members and oh. friend and and former students and such so that uh i don't because it used to be i was always getting uh emails out of the blue asking me where i'm going to be what i'm doing so on and so forth and uh, they put this sort of promotional page there that uh uh, gives that information out. So if anyone's interested, they, they can, uh, to be distinguished from something else called the fan page, which I know very, I've never visited or anything, but I know that exists as well. Uh, and, uh, I've heard things both good and bad about it. (laughs) I prefer, I, I I myself don't, I don't use social media, so I, I, I happily remain ignorant of it. But, uh, so, but there is some. Uh, there is a Facebook promotional page that uh, that keeps, you know, just sort of like a running tally of what's being published, and what's coming out.
0: Right, and and would that would that also be where people would go to find like where you're going to be speaking or different events? Uh, you're
3: gonna be- as a rule, yeah. When I when I yeah, um, uh, when I'm have the wits to rem- remember to remind the people who run the administrators to put that information up. Yeah. They're very good. They're they're much brighter than I am. They keep abreast of these things. One of them, it's a matter of generation, I guess. But the, some of them just always uh, seem to know what's happening uh, before I have a chance to uh, to tell them. So.
2: Why, well, I, I, like personally, I fucking love you, David. Like you, like the shit that, no joke. Like the shit that you produce is like fucking yeah. amazing like no joke cr- no bullshit like it's this is like an like episode top, of deadwood suddenly
3: you know <laughs> what <laughs> happened you know, i mean, I mean I'm expecting ian mcshane or someone <laughs> oh, come on. all right okay well thank you for that uh my my own way of expressing it might be yeah. somewhat different at least where 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 you know i'm being recorded but uh you know. right
0: Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm a huge fan too. I'm, I'm kind of geeking out here. You're my, uh, I was so excited to yeah. have you on the program and I still have like another five questions I didn't get to ask you, but I'm, we're going to, we're going to let you go and All right. maybe we'll come back again and have another round.
3: All right. Well, yeah. take care.
0: All right. Thank you so much Steve. All right. Bye. Oh my goodness. I am just so blown away that we got David Bentley Hart to come on this podcast. And, and what people don't realize is really how, really what a miracle it is that, um uh, we've, we managed to talk David Bentley Hart into actually saying, hello, my name is David Bentley Hart and I'm a heretic because there was a really good chance. He was not going to do that.
1: <laughs> well, that was a challenge. It was a <laughs> that challenge. was the hardest part of the whole if I re- interview. <laughs> if I remember correctly, it was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> but then he played brawl. He, then he played. Yes, bra. he
0: did. Yeah, yeah, he really did. And then once he got going, it was awesome. You know we, uh, I think we'd only told him we were going to talk for about 25 minutes or so. And, man, we got a lot out of him, and, uh, which I, I'm just excited about. Uh, I love David Bentley Hart. I'm a huge fan. And, um, man, I love what he had to yeah. say. Uh, and l- I'm also glad we got to talk <clears throat> about a lot of different topics. But one of the ones that we talked about with him, and he mentioned, I think, that he has a bumming out on this topic, so I can't wait to pick that up. By the way, I do too, uh, but that's down the road. Uh, on this topic of universalism, and so that kind of leads us into our uh, our topic for this 50th episode of the Heretic Happy Hour is uh, universal reconciliation. Uh,
2: just at the mention of universalism. Right. Well, you
0: know, the thing is uh, in doing um in, in doing my research for my book on this topic, um I mean there's just so many amazing things. It's just it's uh, but one of the most the most shocking things and when I tell people this, I tell people this all the time and I get this blank look when I tell them this. Or they have no idea. I, t- I tell Christians that, you know, uh, for the first 500 years of church history, the majority, the dominant view of the Christian church was patristic universalism and eternal... Absolutely. Right. Well, but it's the truth. It's no, no. it's absolutely the truth. And so, but when you tell Christians that, they're like, what? They have no clue because, you know, there have been such... Um, the propaganda, I'm just going to call it that, the propaganda by the Christian church today uh, on this topic of eternal uh, conscious torment is so pervasive that they act as if, first of all, they act as if there are no other Christian views except that one. That's the only one. Mm. Um, and then sort of by default, they just sort of have this assumptive thing that, well, that's always been what the church has believed. Yeah. But once you get into it, that's absolutely not the case.
2: Yeah. I, I think propaganda is the right word. I remember um, it was Mark Driscoll in Kevin Miller's uh, documentary Hellbound. Oh, yeah. Who who said that? And, and he must know this. Yes. But he said that he said that universalism has been condemned for two thousand years, and, and he lists these theologians mm-hmm. who were you know later. You know
0: he starts in the fourth <laughs> century. Yeah, he starts in the fourth <laughs> and, and, century. Maybe. So it's
2: like, yeah. well, that's. that's and, and I remember uh, he when I was writing for the unfundamentalist blog on Pathos, um, I I did this piece on the history of universalism, pr- proving not proving like it's doctrinally true just the fact that the statement that Driscoll made was untrue and he blocked the entire community but um, wow it's just it's it's silly how pervasive it is that we don't uh, at least admit that it's been around for as pretty much as long as Christianity has been around that's exactly I mean right. at le- you don't have you don't have to affirm it but don't don't deny the historical fact that even Augustine admitted that indeed very many uh, subscribe to this view uh and not just like not just random fringe type Christians, like a good uh solid orthodox theologians like Gregory of Nyssa and, and folks like that. Like um, you know, it was a very yeah. mainline and view. And such
0: a mainline view that you don't have um well, like, you know, the even the councils that wrote that put together sort of the creeds, the you know, the the, the early Christian creeds those were presided over by someone who was a known universalist and the other people on those councils didn't object right. to that. And, and we were aware of that. And even if they didn't hold that view, right. they certainly didn't uh, act as if, um, being a universalist was heretical. Like it, it really was the, the dominant view. And, and so just for example, um, there were, f- I think six schools, right. Uh, in early Christianity, and they were located in cities and, um, so, the four, there were four that taught universal reconciliation. So, one was in Alexandria, one in Antioch, one in Caesarea, and one in Edessa. One of them taught um, conditional immortality or annihilationism, that was in Ephesus. And one of them taught e- eternal conscious torment. And by the way, that one was in Rome. And I think that may have had something to do with why eventually that view. Rome's prominence, yes, because what? something happened about in Rome. I, I think what
1: happened? What happened in Rome? I think here- Rome, yeah. Look, look, here's here's my here's look. Can we go back to history here. Okay, if the first five hundred years predominantly was a belief in universal reconciliation by the mm-hmm. the community of the way, which sometimes gets called Christianity, then in in the fourth so- century. <clears throat> When things become to be, you know, and again, this is a pattern. I think if you look at history, you can see there is a need to consolidate and control people. So around the fourth century, Constantine starts calls together, you know, these church councils to, to solidify what is it that we really believe. And by that, I mean, by we, it's a select few people um, that they agree speaks on behalf of the whole. And so this is where the councils come in, the church hierarchy, really the development. This is the evolution into the Roman Catholic Church. And so with this, they start to define what is heresy, what is not, what's acceptable, what's not. They create the Bible. And shortly after that, you have this, this doctrine of hell, which is developed and put in place in order to uh, control masses of people. Um, that's an oversimplification, probably, but that is a summary of the history of this thing. Hell is 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 a pillar of 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 Christianity, and by Christianity, I'm not talking about Jesus or anything he taught. I mean the Christian religion has these pillars, and like four major pillars, I would say, and one of them mm-hmm. is the Bible. The other one is the is his hell, and you need both of these things to prop up this. This religion, this, which is entirely different than what Jesus talked about, but it is a huge yeah. part of it.
0: Well, I, I got to say too, and thank you for bringing that up because here, here's something again. As I was doing some research,
1: um,
0: so again, there were some uh, early sort of church fathers that were that were well known that that uh, during that uh, time period when universalism was the dominant view, didn't teach that. They actually did teach eternal suffering. One of them is John Chrysostom, who's you know very famous uh, church father and, and uh, orator and preacher in the early church. And another one was, um, Basil. And I, I I ran across this quote from, there's a book called the hope of the earth church by a guy named Brian Edward Daly. And in the book, he, he notes that, um, starting with Basil, he says, Basil was an admirer of origin, but later on it says, um, he found the teaching of judgment, meaning eternal conscious torment valuable for the spiritual development of Christians. And then Chrysostom, this is amazing. Um, In Chrysostom's 15th homily on the book of 1 Timothy, he emphasizes the value of fear. And he says, quote, "Uh, since the greater part are virtuous from constraint rather than from choice, the principle of fear is of great advantage to them in eradicating their desires, talking about the common people. And then he continues, he continues, let us therefore listen to the threatenings Mm. of hellfire that we Mm. may be benefited by the wholesome fear of it. It actually reminds me of that quote we talked about a while back, that one that was, um, was it Piper and um, who are those guys? Uh, John Piper and one other guy. There was a video of them. Uh, MacArthur, yes. And they talked about, about how people needed to be afraid and we needed to emphasize the fear and all that. It's the same exact thing. Oh, sort of yeah. like, so so, so the, the, the the feeling that I got as I was doing this research was that, if you had sat down with Casostrum and Basil and some of these guys, and you pressed them on their personal views, they would have personally, they were universalist. Um, but they saw the value in, if I teach judgment and hellfire, it's, it's going to be more effective in kind of using fear to get people to get Christians to be serious about their faith, that their fear was that if they taught universalism, that people would be like, Oh, well, it doesn't matter. And so I'll just live any way I want.
1: Well, it's for the, I think you said it in the yeah. quote there, like they even, they were very honest. Like sometimes if you listen to what people are saying, they'll yeah. actually tell you in your face, the the motivation behind what they're teaching. And this guy said for the eradication of desire. And so mm-hmm. that's key. That's telling. So if you want a group of people to have no desire or at least cover it up or mask it, you have to use fear. Fear does that. And that's how you control people. And again, they probably, if you were to, I mean, just to give them a fair shake, they probably weren't like, Hey, we want to be like, a dictator that's controlling masses of people you know they but the, the way this works in a religious context is you demonize desire so they probably had some deep-seated beliefs that desire was inherently bad and therefore we should we should we need to suppress desire which is really the story of the church historically and that is um why where all the dysfunction comes from so then fear then dictates what people do but these are how this is how slaves are made this is exactly how you enslave people is you you um you eradicate their desire or suppress their desire which is you know literally what they were after um and i you know it brings up an interesting thought because i've heard um i remember you know uh I'm not trying to bash this guy, but he, you know, he's a very public figure, Francis Chan. Yep. You know, I, and for a long time, I used to really admire him and his quest. I do love his heart for like he he does not mind challenging the status quo. And early early in my days of deconstruction, I really really uh, appreciated his his quest. But um, but I there is something he's he he made a statement um that I found was really yeah. revealing, and he just said, you know, and he was responding to this idea of universalism. <clears throat> and he said, you know, I wish that was true. And he said that he actually said, that. he's like, I wish that God would like that, that somehow everybody would be quote unquote saved in the end. He's like, but, you know, that's just not what the Bible teaches. And I got to go with what the Bible teaches versus what I want. And I thought that was so revealing. And so, you know, if, I guess if I could have a conversation with, with him, I would probably say, wow, Francis, like, I, first of all, thanks for your honesty but i mean and, and we can talk about what the bible teachers doesn't teach and that, that's not even really important to me but i would say i'm really interested in the fact that you have a desire that all people would be healed and brought into this, this be- beautiful thing we call salvation. Like I'm I'm so right. interested in that desire. Where did you get that desire? And I would challenge him on that. And obviously I know the pushback would come, well, we can't trust our desires because our desire is twisted and all that kind of thing. And I, and I, and I, I, I get all that, but the thing is like, okay, so um, the desire, so the, the desire to have everybody healed, the longing for everyone to be healed is actually a product of twisted desire. Do you really believe that? So the desire to want to yeah. burn people alive or exclude certain groups of people or all of that, like you think that's divine desire and you can't understand that because you're twisted. Like this idea, this is really the, um, the crux of it is to think like, is there anything? So if you can't even trust your desire that people want to be healed and, and brought in, like, and I would just even challenge the question of like, if desi- if there's a desire that exists, you know, and I don't I don't think people would say, if you press them on it, you would say, does God desire even, does your concept of God, the divine, does God desire that all people would be healed and made well? And I don't think you'll find a Christian out there. Maybe you would. Well, there's uh, a somebody yeah, exactly. who's just yeah. trying to be argumentative. But deep in the heart of hearts, I don't think you'd see. I've heard so many people, evangelicals say, well, God desires that all, and there's actually verses in the Bible. God desires that all people would be redeemed. And so that's like Francis saying, I wish everybody would be, you know, saved in the end. Okay, so is there a desire you have? And so, like C.S. Lewis always said, well, you have a desire because precisely because the fulfillment of that desire exists. Otherwise, you wouldn't have it. So, if there's a desire you have, It come, you know, in what Jane, in the book of James, you use back to scripture, what does, what do you have that you have not received from above? Like, what is it that we have? So every desire we have, I would always challenge (laughs) it, it comes from a source. And if there is such a thing as a desire that comes from the source that there is no fulfillment of, that's actually hell, that's torture. And then whatever the thing is that prevents the desire from manifesting, that is supreme. And I, so basically, what France is saying, hey, the thing that is preventing your desire from coming true, that's your God. That's supreme. And that is horrendous to think that, oh my goodness, there is not a fulfillment. I don't think a desire exists that there's not an ultimate fulfillment for. So again, why do you have the desire if there's no fulfillment for? It? What is the purpose of that desire? Right. And there's no answer to that. Right
2: and 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 we can get to the i'm sure we'll get to the biblical arguments um you know we talk about scripture maybe in a second here <laughs> um but for me it, it like it goes back to what is the fruit of one's doctrine or theology and what's striking to me is that you know these these quotes about wanting to instill fear right. and keep people in line and keep people in check the ironic thing about all of this is that the doctrine of hell was often used as a justification to commit like the most grotesque atrocities in Christian, in Christian Mm -hmm. history, you know, the burning alive of other people, basically doing what we think God's going to do to them in order to like, save the souls that these heretics are uh, deceiving. Right. Um, so it's just – it's always interesting to me through my research because I've written a book on universalism. universalism. It, it was with Whip and Stock. I'll wait for the heresy button. Heresy. Uh, but <laughs> in my research – Oh, it's a little <laughs> slow there. God. A little slow. Slow on the uptake. Yeah, wow. He's busy. He's, he's distracted. Changing diapers, I think. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> probably. Um, when I did research for that book, it was just really, really interesting to me that there was always a correlation between this fear-based doctrine and doing horribly unethical things. But then on the flip side, the universalists, and this is the argument against universalism that I often hear, is that it will lead people to say, fuck it, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to sin. I'm going to do this and that. And there's no repercussions. Um, God, I was waiting. For, I was wondering if that was happening. Um, but the opposite seems to be true for most universalists and it's like Mm -hmm. it it, it's like you you have um origin who was a very you know very pious holy person no one could say like he was a a horrible christian even though they condemned some of his beliefs later in the sixth century um you don't have this thread of universalists committing horrible things no Um, You, you really have it on the flip side. Like there is this correlation between the doctrine of hell and grotesque torture of other human beings, even people um, who are within the same faith.
0: Right. Uh, Well, you know, here's what's, here's what's interesting about that, Matt. I think you're right. And I think um, my theory about that is I think if you are truly a universalist and in other words, you believe that God is a loving father, and you believe that every human being on this planet is a child of God, and therefore your literal brother and sister in Christ, and that eventually we are all going to be, we're all going to experience redemption and transformation, and we are all going to finally be whole and perfect uh, in the the presence of God. The truth is, I, I think that makes you actually a more loving person. It makes you a more accepting and kind and giving person because every you don't see people anymore as well they're going to burn in hell they're lost they're sinners or you know the, you don't see these divisions anymore you actually see connection you see um you see the good in everyone right you see even at least the potential well, yeah. the potential good in everyone because that's how god sees everyone
2: yeah and and you can still be a jerk and, and as a universalist for sure yes, but when you when you really think when you really think about it you're like what what good reason do I have to hold a grudge? What good reason do I have to not forgive someone who I true, if you truly believe that if in the end you're going to reconcile, well, why not now? Right. Cause it makes no sense to be like, Oh, we'll just push that off to later. I mean, yeah, we do it because we're human and we still, we still struggle with shit. But it, it, when you really step back and you, and you're contemplative about it and you're just like, wow, I, I, I literally have no reason to not forgive this person or to not reconcile with this person. I mean, Yeah. Reconciliation doesn't always happen. It has to be a two way street, but you, you yourself can start to let go of that baggage that you might have those grudges you might hold. Uh, and and it really causes you, it really causes you to think about these things.
0: Yeah. Because if you do, if you do embrace the sort of the, either the annihilation or the eternal conscious torment view, again, this is just my opinion, but I, I, at different points in my life, I have held all three views. Um, I, I think those, those other two mindsets, um, eternal torment and annihilation, it really does sort of like, it allows you to dismiss people. It allows you to say, well, they're, they're lost. They're going to burn in hell. Um,
2: it opens the door. It it at least
0: makes it easier. Put it that way. Um, versus if I really do believe it, well, you know what? Everyone's God loves everyone and God is going to redeem everyone. God cares enough about everyone. that He's not going to give up on them. Then, um, yeah, at least at least for me, it really helps my perspective of other people to say, "Well, no one's beyond redemption, no one's beyond forgiveness, or or even that ultimate reconciliation." So, anyway, I, I just uh, for me anyway, I, I think um, those other two views lead to much more toxicity, uh, give us more permission to dismiss people and stuff. So, we probably should get into at least some of the uh, scriptural basis.
2: Well, that's going to be the that's going to be the pushback, right? Right.
0: Right. I mean,
2: for a
1: lot of people,
0: right? Because so far, all we're talking about is our our feelings and our views, and we're we're sort of um, which is uh, which is uh, which
1: is probably more important than the scripture.
0: Yes. Well, for some people, it is. Uh, well, for, for me, it absolutely
1: is because, yes, well, of course, well, because the Bible is real. And well, yeah, no, I because because it. that's actually what Jesus taught us to look to for an understanding of what ultimate reality is because nowhere does Jesus ever say, Hey, look to a book that will be created, you know, several centuries later. He always said, come back to the fruit, come back to this internal Mm -hmm. state. Like, what does it do for you? I personally feel that anything, and this is, again, I know this will come across as like, Oh my gosh, very rigid to some people, but anything that falls short of universal reconciliation, any, any view that doesn't embrace universal reconciliation is a profound misunderstanding of the kingdom of God, because Jesus was very clear. And I think it's pretty, I mean, it's if, if you, and again, he's using natural examples. Like he said, what shall I compare the kingdom of heaven to? Oh, it's like a lady who takes a little bit of leaven yeast and throws it in a batch of flour. Well, if anybody who's worked with dough, I used to work at this pizza shop when I was a kid and, um, and like, literally we have to make dough. And I just remember marveling at this. We'd put a little bit of yeast in the in the dough. You just cover it and you come back a, a while later, a day later, the next day. And the whole thing would just have risen and been transformed. And there's not one batch of the dough that wasn't transformed. And this whole concept even is like, yeah, it starts small, but it works its way from the inside out and it transforms the entire thing. That's it's an analogy um, to me. It's an analogy of gosh this is how the kingdom of god works so this idea that somehow everything won't be transformed is just a profound misunderstanding of how the nature of the kingdom works
0: yeah well um for for those people that that do i mean for me i mean i was um i went through this step by step process so for me i sort of um I re- I realized that there were three christian views uh i recognized also that as i looked into it that Um, A lot of the verses that are used to support the eternal conscious torment view, what I've seen is, is that they're actually not verses at all about what happens to us after we're dead. It's not about the afterlife. These are verses that typically are apocalyptic hyperbole, that Jesus is borrowing the exact phrases from the Old Testament scriptures, which were judgments that the prophets were making against actual cities, Edom, Egypt, uh, Babylon, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And and so they're about what's going to happen. He's prophetically warning people in Jerusalem, uh, using that same exact language that they need to you know turn around, think differently, go another way, or they're going to suffer this destruction of Jerusalem, which is coming, and it did come in AD 70. So um, all that. So so for me, I sort of like okay, well, I, I can I believe I can safely say that these verses that I thought were about what happens to us after we die. Are not about that at all. And, and so I can say, okay, then I don't think eternal conscious torment is real. And then I kind of moved on to the annihilation view, because again, I was saying, well, scripturally, it looks like a language is often about perishing and dying, perishing. And, yeah. and you know, uh, those kinds of things. So, so I thought, okay, that's what that's about. Um but then even the more I looked at those verses, the more I thought, well, those, again, could I think still be about AD 70. Like they will physically die. That, and that is what happened. Those people alive at that time, uh, during the time of Jesus, who did not turn and follow his path, they did physically die. Their bodies were physically thrown into the Valley of uh, Hinnom, right? or Which was Gehenna, outside the city gates and burned. Um, so, you know, and then that, with, along with some other things and I really started looking more seriously at Universalism. Um, But there are verses, this is again, let's go back to what we just said at the beginning. From the beginning, uh, in church history, there have always been three different views of the afterlife based on the Bible. So all three views are Christian. All three views are quote unquote biblical.
2: Biblical, yeah.
0: And so, uh, again, the majority view of the church was universalism. And I would argue that that came through Jesus and through Paul. And the other apostles that that and my gosh I this pisses people off when I say this but when you start studying the verses for universalism you realize that without Paul the apostle we he's the he gives us more ammunition for the universalist view than anywhere else like Paul is the is uh he's the universalist apostle like there's so many amazing verses that just Paul flat out says isn't it interesting
1: right? though that any of the epistles of Paul you will never find any reference to eternal conscious punishment. Not really, I mean no
2: there's there's one maybe right? in in uh, in Thessalonians, but that's a stretch, and I think that's um
0: that's yeah
2: well, it might not even be it might not even be Paul but that's true um i think i I think it's a stretch, and you know like uh translations such as the n i v have actually added <laughs> English words where
3: English, <gasps> the Greek
2: text what? but uh, I know i would they i know do? they would never no one would ever do that to, <laughs> to yeah. Right. But yeah, I mean, you have this uh, you have this phrase about um, judgment or punishment coming from the face of the Lord and or, or something to that effect. And they've added like away from. So it's basically like we're we're completely removed from the Lord. And, and then we face our just desserts. And it's like, oh, my God, mm-hmm. that's that one's a stretch. But you you're right. If you if you take Paul really, really seriously, I think you have to look at the fact that he was certainly an inclusivist well, there, or universalist along those.
1: Yeah, lines. there's no argumentation. Like so when he's presenting the good news, so to speak, his message to people, it there's no use of this, hey, this is where you will go. The and no if you don't believe yeah. this message, there was none of that. You can't no. find that in any of the epistles. And I find that to be fascinating. It's like, well, then the evangelical message that that's preoccupied with the afterlife is like that did not come from paul who because of the n- nor acts no. nor the book of, i no. mean you, the no. book no. of acts you,
2: never, you, don't, come, you don't you don't you don't
0: have no, a know. Know. no there's <laughs> nine yeah there's like nine sermons in the book of acts by the apostles and not a single one of them ha- ends with any kind of a threat the, about hell
1: zero it's literally uh, a creation of of the fourth, fifth, sixth, 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 century church. I mean it's developed. It's yeah. this is I mean again well, solidified. Solidified. There's always people that yeah. have there's always fear mongers. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is a there are there were people that you know were in the early movement of Christianity that that didn't understand. Just like the apostles, most of the apostles didn't understand completely this this understanding of the nature of the kingdom, of that it's internal first, that it's it takes over from the inside out, that it's not something you see and try to manifest right. externally through force and all that. I mean, they didn't even get that, really, for right. a long time.
0: And we see that, and yeah. we see the evidence of that in the book of Acts, for example, where, you know, it, how long did it take for Peter to recognize that the that the good news of the kingdom was for people, not just for Jews, that it was for Gentiles.
2: Yeah. yeah. And look at Mark. I mean, the Mark, the the apostles are painted as kind of idiots.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's very true. I think um, for me personally too, as I was studying this topic, what I read, what it it comes down to honestly is for me is that um, I believe that God is like Jesus, that, you know, Jesus has revealed to us, who the father really is. And before, before Jesus did that, before Jesus revealed to us the heart of the father, and what the father's character really was, we didn't clearly see that. But now we do. Now we know who, that the father is the way Jesus tells us he is, right? And so, um, but here's the thing. If I'm wrong, if, if Jesus isn't exactly right, or if I'm misunderstanding Jesus, and if God is the kind of a God who would say, you know what, I'm gonna take some of you arbitrarily or or maybe even just based on judgment I'm just gonna say um a, a large percentage of you I am gonna roast in hell forever um even if that God said to me okay Keith you know what you're good I'm gonna let you in I'm not gonna roast you forever in hell but I will roast your wife and your children or your mom and dad or your grandparents or your best friend or, or anybody the
2: truth and is- your two hosts and your two co-hosts
0: yeah and you're, <laughs> your two co-hosts of so the are to half hour um that here's the thing I I don't want to be trapped forever with that God. I don't want to spend time with that God. I, I you know like if that's who God really is, like I, I'm out, you know, never mind. I, I don't want to be, uh, you know, <laughs> spending an eternity with a God who could just basically at any moment just say, you know what, I'm tired of you. I don't like you either. <laughs> you know, well, we're just going to toss you in. Uh, I, but again, I don't think that's who God is. I I really do believe, uh, my faith is in uh, the, the truth that, Jesus really does reveal to us that God is a loving father. Uh, he doesn't need blood. He doesn't need uh, torture uh, to love us or forgive us. Uh, he just loves us. He just forgives us. This is how he deals with, uh, with sin. This is how he, how he deals with, um, you know, with, with evil in the world. He just forgives it, and he redeems us, and he transforms us because of his love. And for me, uh, that's what it just comes down to. I mean, again, I, I think if there's lots yeah. of scriptural support For the view, um, and I do, you know, but I think ultimately it comes down to that for me—that Jesus is right about who God is, and that's the God I want to serve. And if God isn't like that, then yeah. And I I think
1: when you think of God as mother, you like who, who, which mom? You know, moms always love you. You know what I mean? Like moms always accept you. Moms always like that's the idea. That's everybody's experience, ideally. Not maybe. (laughs) I'm sure there's exceptions to that, but the idea is that when no one else loves you, your mama loves you. You know, and that's I think that's that's a radical. Uh, picture i think people from um i think that's not uh that goes back a long way you know it's not just this i think people from most generations can understand where dads can be a little rigid again that we understand it's not that's not what jesus was not depicting that of the heavenly father but in the depiction of the heavenly mother like if you were to understand god as a divine feminine then you would also understand that yes this is that this is the other side of that equation that's all it's very nurturing accepting loving like this is what you know that, and I think that's been missing from lots of the 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 understanding when we going back into history. You know, a lot of the divine feminine understanding of God has been suppressed western in the Western world to the point that that's why this has not been understood. Because once you once that understanding comes in, then it's very natural to understand God is just accepting, nurturing, loving, doesn't reject. Yeah, of course. Um, and that that's that flows very well. It also flows well with Father too. But again, um. That's, you know, we haven't had a understanding of that. I think the other thing that's really important, too, is people all, often will say, well, you don't believe in hell. And I, I totally believe in hell. I believe in perishing. I believe that that's very much a reality. Jesus talked a lot about, or I would not say talked a lot about, I mean, he did reference perishing a lot. I mean, this was part of the conversation. There's always this, these two paths out there, you know, the narrow path, the wide path. The path that leads, the wide path is the path that leads to destruction and perishing even you look at John 316 mm-hmm. you know for God so loved the world that you know that Jesus was sent so that people wouldn't perish I mean I would agree with that I just think that when we put the spin on it as being afterlife again
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's this is the evangelical misunderstanding that this is everything's about the afterlife and that's just not true there's not even a lot said about the afterlife because probably right. like I said before yeah there is no afterlife in the sense of it's it's always life. It's always right now. So are people perishing? Is heaven or hell does heaven or hell exist? I would say yes. It most definitely exists right now, you know, in the in the very present moment. Yeah. So there's always this choice before us, even like the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. It has nothing to do with when you die. This is not even the the conversation. It's today. So today there's this choice of understanding coming out of suffering the hell of being feeling like you're rejected that you're not loved that you're alone this is hell this is what people are suffering from And the in the revelation of jesus is emmanuel which is god with us that that we're not rejected that we're not alone that we're all these things so it's heaven or hell is a conversation for present moment you know ultimately the hope we have is that the desire that everyone will be healed will happen and of course, that's, that's pretty obvious. Like that's the understanding of Jesus. That was the understanding of Paul and the early, the early church um, that understood that grasped this revelation of Christ, the universal Christ, the cosmic Christ understood that, yeah, there is not one place that's not going to be summed up in this thing, in this understanding of Christ. Like, yeah, obviously, but the, what's, what's really more important is not where you spend, where you go when you die, because that's who cares because there is no, like, there is no tomorrow. It's always today. So the, the real question is, where are you mm-hmm. now? And where will you, and it will always be now. Yeah. Forever.
2: Yeah. And and even if we are talking about the afterlife, I will add, uh, you know, one more caveat, which is a complaint that some people have about universalism is that there's no such thing as justice or there's no such thing. People just, you know, they stay the way they are. Hitler's going to walk into hell or into heaven, you know, those sort of things. It's like, no, I, I, I think. Correction is always a possibility, right. um, whether whether we're corrected in the here and now or whether it's the so-called afterlife. Um, I don't see anything mu- mutually exclusive between justice and love or correction and love. I don't um, I don't play the uh, correction or justice card when my daughter screws up and then go back to loving. It's always through the lens of love. So. Uh, i think people need to keep in mind that you can you can be a universalist and still believe in um if you want to call it punishment or correction or um discipline i i, I think um many and that was the early patristic view yes, right, right. Yes, correct me if i'm wrong no you're is right that,
0: yeah
2: yeah yeah there yeah there'd be a purgatorial type situation you know well, for your are redeemed i mean I, yeah. I i don't know one way or another but
0: yeah i think the what uh, i what i've as i've been studying it and that you've already studied too, as well but like the the view was um and it's based on one of paul's scriptures about how uh all will pass through the fire which means everyone good bad christian non-christian right. uh every right. one of us will pass through the fire but the, the question is and by the way that's something uh key to, to mention about all three views uh eternal conscious torment annihilation and patristic universalism all three views say that after death we'll enter the fire the question is what is the nature and purpose of that fire and uh, i i think that the universalist view is supported by the scriptures that there's a verse in hebrews that talks about how um you know god disciplines those he loves well who are those that god loves well the scriptures say everyone god loves everyone god so loved the world so everyone that god loves which is all of his children We'll pass through the fire. We'll go through some amount of discipline, but it's always, it says in Hebrews, it's always for our good. Yes, for our benefit, and it's so. It's it's intent. Whatever this fire is, I think this fire is a metaphor. It's not literal fire, but it's some sort of a refining process that, yes, might be, an unpleasant to endure at the moment, but the um, the end result is we are we are brought through the flame and the you know the gold and silver and precious stones. Are revealed and all the other things are burned away and that's and so we're been eventually brought to this place of being made right uh, in ourselves and with god in a way that like you said hitler's not going to walk into heaven as hitler he's going to walk in as a totally like an unrecognizable human being that will be like wow that was who you were that's what you did wow and then he that he would be so broken about that right he would be like wow yeah but glory to god you know, this is something that God has done. And I, I, I don't know, I, we can talk about this. We could probably do a whole nother podcast on this. Like, because I'm not, I'm also remembering, I'm also remembering the verse, uh, which again, we talk about words being changed in our English translations. Um, there's that verse that says, you know, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Well, what our English translations leave out is the word uh, gladly, well, the word gladly is there sort of the word the word that every uh every knee will bow and every tongue will will confess that word there is gladly confessed like in other words yeah, yeah, yeah nice. it is yes it's not yeah. something where it's going to be ripped from your clenched teeth you know it's sort of like you know oh no.
2: Jesus is lord that's that's that yeah that's Caesar right exactly
0: <laughs> you're not so in other words every soul will gladly willingly say yes Jesus is lord and when, what did Paul say about all those who confess that Jesus is lord well, they'll be saved. So, yeah, that's just like when you start recognizing these verses and understanding what they really teach. Again, if nothing else, it's worth looking into. If you're not someone who has embraced universalism, yeah. I highly recommend uh, lots of books you can read. Um, You know, like you said, Matt, you got one. Uh David Milliard has one coming out. Yeah. There's a book called uh, "I want to." I want to push called Um "My Friend Steve Gregg" wrote a book called "Hell: All You Want to Know About Hell," and it, he takes all three views very fairly. He doesn't take a side and just presents all three views scripturally, but he also points out, um, some of the weaknesses in some of those scriptures and some of those, you know, some of that thinking. And uh, it's excellent. It's a great, great place to start if you're curious about that topic.
2: Yeah. And a- another great place to start is to join us on the Facebook group. And we can, ca- that's where we carry on the conversation w- with those of you who listen. So if you're not in the Facebook group, uh, just look up Heretic Happy Hour on Facebook, uh, jump on there. Let's continue this conversation. We also have a website, uh, heretichappyhour.com, as well as a, uh, a Patreon site. So it's patreon.com slash hour if you want to support us and get even more excellent Yeah, content. absolutely.
0: And by the way, if you guys are in Southern California or near Southern California, I want to invite you to join me on June 22nd uh, at First United Methodist Church for an event called United We Stand. This is to... Um, get Christians to come together to address the fact that the church is more politically divided than ever before and hopefully find common ground in the body of Christ so we can get really back on track with what we're called to do and who, who we're called to be. And if you want information about that, you can find that at faithandpolitics.us or just uh, follow me on Facebook or uh, look for a link on my page.
1: Yes. And did you guys know that, um, that we are available on iTunes? No yeah we sure tell totally you are uh, itunes carries our, our podcast the uh, heretic happy hour and you can rate us and review us we would love that please it actually goes a long way from one to five stars yes yeah. no okay. no
0: no it's only only five
1: only five stars only five stars we got a couple ones <laughs> <laughs>